Would you open in your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6 as we return to our walking through the pastoral epistles. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 3. You know, I feel like it's always abrupt to move from December to January to jerk ourselves out of the Advent and the Christmas decorations and celebrating Jesus' birth at Christmas and plunge back into the expository preaching that we've been doing. In our case, it's 1 Timothy chapter 6. But today is going to feel all the more so as we leave uh, the lowing cattle and slumbering baby Jesus in the manger scene and where we step back into our text describes the fate of a person who lusts after wealth with such desire that they end up impaling themselves to death in apostasy. That's heavy. There's no way to really soften the transition between the two things, although they are intimately related, and I don't think we have to soften the transition to what we're going to talk about today. You know, every sermon that I prepare, I hope that I really wrestle in my own heart with the text and what it means for me before I bring it on Sunday morning and share it with you. And this case has been no exception, except for the fact that as I've wrestled with this text, and specifically what it says about contentment and discontentment and an angst and a desire for more than what I have, this text has struck me to the core because this is something that, that I wrestle with deeply in my own heart and my life. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3 says that we are to choose elders for ourselves who will lead and shepherd us who do not love money. And my honest confession to you this morning is that I am a man who loves money. I do. I love it. You're not readily going to see that because I'm not a big spender. I'm not going to drive a nice car. I'm not going to have a huge house. I'm not going to have nice clothes. I'm a hoarder. I don't love money for what it can buy me per se. I love having it and holding it and watching it grow in my possession and the security and the comfort that it brings me. I love it. Now, the verses that I'm about to read this morning, they don't just address the wealthy. We're not talking about rich people who are in our midst, as if anybody in this room who made less than twenty-five or 30000 a year could just tune out for the next half hour. We are talking about, in verse 9, those who desire to be rich, Paul is going to say, which is a very roundabout way to say every human being who has ever lived. That's who this applies to. Listen carefully as I read 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels over words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray together. 
This is a frightening warning, Lord. And I pray that even now, even as whispers begin in our hearts and our minds, either of pride that we don't deal with this, or depression, we feel totally undone by our greed, that you would silence both of those from both places and that you would instead speak words of life to us. You are the shepherd who calls us by name and we come because you give us life and life abundantly. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, surprise, surprise, we're back in 1 Timothy, and Paul tells us right off the bat in verse 3, he's after a kind of teaching that accords with godliness. Now, Paul, if you'll remember, he's already said that about 100 times, and this is 101. Good teaching bears good fruit, Bad teaching bears bad fruit. Wherever we find wrong teaching and wrong believing, then wrong living is sure to follow. And the inverse of that is also true. Wherever we see wrong living and disobedience, we can be sure that there is wrong believing and teaching behind it. So this is what Paul's point is here. He wants Timothy to sniff out this kind of unsound living because it will lead Timothy to places in Ephesus where this church is, where people are believing and teaching the wrong thing. Now, he gives several examples of ungodliness in verses 4 and 5, but we're going to camp out today where Paul eventually camps out, and that is in the area of contentment and discontentment with respect to money, with respect to wealth. Now I can just picture Paul as he's sitting here writing this letter, thinking to himself as he's penning 1 Timothy, you know, I've already brought up politics, I've brought up gender roles, I've brought up sex, why not just round out the offensiveness of this letter and talk about other people's money? And I'm kind of standing here with Timothy saying, yeah, that's all well and good for the guy who writes it and puts it in the P.O. box, but what about the guy who has to stand up and read it and share it face-to-face with friends? I feel what Timothy is, is feeling right now in Ephesus. I want to ask two questions of this text that, that really beg to be asked as we come to it this morning. First, how does contentment relate to doctrine? What's the, the relationship between contentment and doctrine? And secondly, what's at stake? Why does it matter? Why are we spending time talking about this? First, how does contentment relate to doctrine? This is no secret in Paul's letter how these two go together. He's already alluded to in verse 5 that those who think vocational ministry is a means of great gain. He goes on and writes in verses 6 through 8, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Godliness, what Paul is talking about here, godliness is authentic Christian living. This is, this is a kind of living that's true to itself and true to its teaching. And this is evidenced in part by contentment. You see contentment, you find godliness. And one of the ways we demonstrate our contentment is that regardless of our material circumstances, we are joyful and we're generous. When you spot somebody that no matter what they have or don't have, they're joyful in their estate and the lot that God has given them, and they're generous with what they have, and you are watching the real thing. You are watching an authentic Christian life that, according to verse 3, accords with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, The life of this person and the words of Jesus Christ, they go hand in hand. I see them together. Contentment equals doctrine, right doctrine. 
So when we as a church look for elders in chapter three, verse three, we look for men who are not lovers of money. When we look for deacons in our midst to lead us in chapter three, verse eight, we look for men who are not greedy for dishonest gain. When we find a so-called Christian in our midst in chapter five, verse eight, who does not provide materially for his own household, we say that he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Why? Because of the relationship between contentment and doctrine. Your billfold is your belief. Your credit card is your creed. Where your heart is, is where your treasure is, is where your heart will be also. Right? This is exactly what Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.21. You find a person's treasure and that's exactly where their heart is. That's where their heart is going and leading. Now, I told you guys before that there's a gym downstairs in the taps room. It's got bikes. It's got some free weights. So if you're ever bored during the service and need to break out for for a quick workout, you can do that. And when you do that, you're going to find printed on the wall this hilarious statement. It says, where your butt is, your mind will follow. Now, that is a very true biblical sentiment. It's saying on Monday morning, 6 a.m., if your behind is in the exercise bike and you are working out, your mind will snap to attention, right? Because it better. You're already there. The inverse is not true. If you wake up on, at 6 a.m. on Monday morning and your mind is full of wonderful thoughts about working out and all its benefits, but your behind is in bed, that will not do you any good. It is capturing a biblical sentiment. Jesus is saying... It's not where your heart is, your treasure will follow. It's where your treasure already is, that's where your heart is going to follow. And so it's interesting that we often talk in the reverse. Haven't we used this phrase, his heart's in the right place? Have you used that with each other or heard somebody say that? His heart is in the right place. And when I say that, what does that immediately bring to mind? It means that his actions are not. You're, you're trying to give him the benefit of the doubt and saying that his heart is in the right place. You're, you're doing that. That's like, to say somebody's heart is in the right place is like when you're leaving on a blind date and you ask your roommate, come on, man, what you really like? And he says, uh, she's got a great personality. And you say, oh boy, what's wrong with her? Is she on parole or something? I mean, what, what's the deal? When the principal calls you and says, Mrs. Smith, I know that your son's heart is in the right place you know that something bad is going to follow. Because what we mean when we say that is his heart has arrived somewhere that his body has not. And we believe with good intentions over time, his feet, his hands will begin to live up to where his heart already is. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus isn't a sucker. He tells us, look, where your treasure is today, what you spend money on today, what you hoard today That's exactly the spot you are going to find your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, all of us are about to get a reality check with respect to this. All of us are going to receive in the mail in this new year two documents. One is going to be our earnings, our W-2, and one is going to be our giving statement, what we gave away in 2014, And I want to ask all of us, this entire church, to do something really radical. Instead of filing those away and waiting for tax time and just putting them together to file our taxes, I want us to put those two documents in front of us with our spouse on the dining room table, and I want us to do a simple math equation. 
I want to take the giving statement, the smaller number, that, that number, and divide it by our pre-tax earnings on our W-2, and I want to multiply that number by 100, and what you are looking at is the percentage of your income that you gave away in 2014. What's the cold, hard number of the percent of your pre-tax income that you took out of your pocket and you invested generously towards the Lord's work? I want to ask you that. When you're looking at that number, did you tithe in 2014? Did you take 10% of your income and give it away generously? Did you tithe to Columbia Presbyterian Church? I know there's some debate out there about what you do with that 10%. Do you divide it up in different places? I'm going to answer that question in a later sermon. Today, I'll I'll give you a sneak preview. Yes, you give 10% and above and beyond that to your local church so that we as a community can be disciple-making disciples in a church-planting church. And where you see needs above and beyond that, you give generously above and beyond that. But the question is, as you're sitting at your dining room table, did I tithe in 2014? I realize that even as I say this, we're going to walk out from here. We're going to start to get this mail in the mailbox. We're going to take it home, and Satan is going to begin to whisper to us about this. And if it's not Satan, I suspect it will be our spouse that whispers to us and says, do we really need to do this? We've been a Christian for, we've been Christians for a long time. We've been giving for a long time. Do we really literally need to sit down with these two pieces of paper and do the math together? Isn't it just important to know that we felt generous in 2014? Isn't it just important to know that when we felt like we had something, we also gave something away? Isn't that what this is all about? Not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law and what we did. If I say this to myself and my wife and I say this to ourselves, we are lying to ourselves. We're being deceived by the very wealth that God has given us. And if we say that the feeling and the sentiment trumps what the numbers on the page say, we're lying to ourselves. We're like Bilbo Baggins at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings when he says to Gandalf, I've given you the ring. And Gandalf says, no, you haven't. It's still in your pocket. If I say I felt like I was generous in 2014, Jesus is saying to me, you haven't been. It's still in your pocket And incidentally, that's exactly where your heart is right now. It's where your treasure is. Your heart, your creed, your doctrine are found where your treasure is. Are you giving it generously out of a joyful contentment? Or are you hoarding and spending it on yourself? The numbers will betray where our heart is. That's the relationship between contentment and doctrine. What's at stake here? Why, why are we talking about this? Why are we spending so much time here? I, I realize that the taboo is of the preacher talking about money because that's all the church wants, right? The church wants you to show up and to smile and get a cup of coffee and put something generous in the offering plate so we can keep doing what we do. I, I, I realize that that's the taboo. It is true that if every single member and attender of CPC truly took this to heart and tithe their pre-tax income to this church, we could do so much more ministry. We could plant more churches. We could support more ministries. We could expand our outreach. We could send more missionaries overseas. If we all gave above and beyond our tithe to this place, we could do so much more ministry. Isn't it interesting that none of that is found in our text in 1 Timothy 6 right now? The Spirit doesn't say a single word about sending missionaries overseas. Because right now, this morning, 
the Spirit's concern is not paying the ministry bills at CPC. The Spirit's concern this morning is for your and my eternal life. We're not talking right now about missionaries and ministries and what we could do with more dollars and how we could spend it and how we could make this place look nice. None of that is on the table right now. What's on the table right now, what the Spirit is saying to you and I is, I'm concerned about your eternal soul. What direction are you walking in right now with respect to your money? There's a door that stands at the end of our text in verses 9 and 10. And over the top of this door is written in verse 9, those who desire to be rich. Now this Sunday, we're talking about not wealth in general or Christians being wealthy. We're going to talk in a later sermon very soon that our desire is that God would bless all of us that we as Christians would earn as much as we possibly can by God's grace, that we would give as much as we can, save as much as we can, that we would be wise stewards of our money. When the door says the desire to be rich, right now we're talking about every single person in this room who has an angst and a restlessness and a discontent for more. I suspect that that in part describes every single person who's here. This door stands before us and there's darkness behind it. You'll remember in Dante's Inferno that we've already referenced, um, Dante tells this allegory of walking through the different levels of hell. He's guided by his tour guide Virgil, and he goes through these nine levels of hell, each more ghastly than the last, until at the very end he is so overcome by the horrors of this place that he repents of his sin and runs to God. That's not entirely unlike what happens at the end of our text here. The Spirit draws us up in verse 9 to the edge of this door that says those who desire to be rich and says, can we open this together and see what's behind this door? Will you do that with me this morning? Will we open this door and by the Spirit's power look and see what is the path for those who desire to be rich, those who have an angst and a discontent for more, what happens to us and where does it go? Well, the door immediately opens to a fall. We fall into the things that are about to happen, the steps one, two, three, and four. Uh, this, this fall is an unforeseeable and an unfortunate con- consequence. It's like in Luke chapter 10, the, ro- the person on his way to Jericho who falls into the hands of robbers. And we realize right off the bat that when we opened this door, this desire to be rich, we thought it was because we were seizing life by the horns. We were taking our destiny into our own hands to drive after wealth. But when we fall into this door, we understand with great fear that there are powers here at work that are bigger and stronger than us. And it leads us to the very first step. First, we face temptation. This is a lure. This is a desire. The more we play with this temptation, the idea of more and better and bigger, the more our appetites are wedded for this and we really desire it. And the more our consciences are dulled from doing things that can get us this kind of wealth. Temptation in step one leads to step two. The text says that we become ensnared or entrapped by this thing that we're tempted by. To be sure, 
we are responsible for the sins we commit. If we walk through this door and if we pursue discontentment in this way, we are responsible for the things we do. But there's also a sense, we realize this with every sin, the more we indulge, the less we're free to come and go as we please, right? The more, the deeper, the darker these things become, the less we can put this thing down and walk away with immunity. We're entrenched, we're ensnared. Isn't that part of the, the definition of addiction? To do something again and again and again that we know has serious consequences and yet we cannot, we feel like we can't pull out of it? That's the second step on this road. Third, we read, we are thrust into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And the Greek image here is being grabbed and thrust underwater. We're drowning in the very thing that we're pursuing. All all that that we told ourselves before, that that going down this road is ambition, it's zeal, it's, it's business savvy, All of that is a thin veneer for a lust for wealth. And what we thought was our allies and our attributes becomes like a millstone around our neck and it is drowning us in the very thing we lust after. Finally, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Or as Jesus said, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Wow. Can we take a step back? Can we close this horrifying door that leads to a discontent pursuit of wealth? It's terrifying to see these things. Friends, this is a very intense text. This is a a very intense sermon. I've called all of us to the mat this morning to pull out our giving statement and our earning statement and define by the numbers where we stand with our generosity. That's a radical step. I've insinuated that your spouse might be the voice of Satan in your life, pleading with you not to do that. That's kind of intense. We've walked down this road, this Dante's Inferno, that the only end of this thing, if we ride it to the very end of the page, is to impale ourselves to death in apostasy. This is intense. I feel like stopping the sermon here and getting down and giving everybody a hug. That's what I want to do. We'll have time for that after the service. But I don't want to shortchange what the Spirit might be doing. Isn't that our tem- pastoral temptation to pull out quick and, and to, to, to tie this together in a, in a neat bow at the end of this thing when the Spirit even now may be penetrating some of our hearts, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and exposing things either with respect to a desire to be wealthy or with other lusts that we harbor in our heart? The Spirit is doing this work inside of all of us. Here's the hope of this passage. Here's here's the gospel sentiment that we hang our hat on when we read a passage like this. The reason the Spirit does this, the reason why he shows us how horrifying and ghastly the road to the desire to be rich is, that is the road to make anything but God ultimate in our lives, the reason that he does that is because the road of making the Lord Jesus ultimate and most precious to us is a hundred thousand times better and sweeter and more life-giving in our life. 
There's not a single person in this room, no matter where, if you're honest with yourself, you find yourself on this path to the desire to be rich. Even if you are being thrust underwater by the lust that you have pursued and you see no way out, there's not a man, woman, or child in this room who the gospel does not speak to that says, stop what you're doing, run to Jesus, confess your sin to him, and he will wrap you in your arms and forgive you and give you the power to crucify the desires of the flesh. That's the gospel, friends. It finds us not just in church on Sunday morning looking our Sunday best. It finds us behind this door of darkness giving ourselves over to the sins that will crucify us. Will you run to Jesus? And will you find in him a path, a life more sweeter than you could imagine? Let's pray together. Father, even now our hearts are giving knee-jerk reactions to this sermon and to your spirit speaking to us. Some are responding in pride. We don't struggle with any of this. We don't know what the pastor is talking about. Wealth is not an issue for us. Some of us are struggling with utter destitute depression. This describes us to a T, whether it's money or pornography or gossip or any kind of lust or desire. It describes us and we feel the weight of sinking you find us in the darkness of pride and you find us in the darkness of depression and you long to free us. Give us courage to cry out to you and to receive your healing. We plead in Jesus' name, amen.